Our first reading this morning comes at the very beginning of the Old Testament. We're in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. So Genesis 2, 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, so that was was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, "'This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman.' for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Our second reading comes from the New Testament. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of the Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Thank you, Suze. Beautifully read. Now I've got to teach on it. So, uh, yeah, may God strengthen me and us as we hear his word today. Uh, now, before we get to the passage, let me uh, take you back to the king's coronation. I know some of you think I'm fixated on this, 
I'm really not a royalist or anything like that, but just making observations. Have a look at the pictures there, just some of the crowd photos. What do you notice? Talk to the person next to you. I didn't say call out loud. <clears throat> so here is, here is something that some of you have noticed. All the, women, all the women wore hats or a fascinator, right? A fascinator is just a little a mini hat or covering. Uh, but all the women wore something on their heads. But that wasn't the dress code. Uh, so the dress code was just uh, smart business attire. Uh, so the, the king didn't really want people to go to town. Uh, he didn't want it to have too much pomp and ceremony and all that sort of thing. But people, as they came, inquired. They wanted to kind of dress appropriately. And interestingly, that meant all the women wore hats or fascinators or tiaras or something on their head, and all the men didn't except if they were part of the military, where they had a military hat, <clears throat> or, you know, one of those fluffy black things that some of the guards wear, or the king obviously had his crown, uh, or the priests had that funny mitre uh, type thing that they wear. Um, so, basically, I'm just making an observation here. Basically, all the women wore hats, and it kind of feels for a woman to have attended and not wear something on her head it feels like it would have been saying something, making a statement. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what you th think, but uh, you just wonder whether that's something of the vibe. But for one reason or another, that's what the women wore. Now, today we come to a passage that has a lot to say about women and head coverings. And coronation aside, this passage feels very countercultural, doesn't it? It feels very strange to our 21st century ears. Um, and, and, and it is. There are cultural practices in this passage that are very different, you know, that are 2,000 years away from our culture. But God's word cuts across culture. And what we want to do is not just look at the cultural expressions, but the underlying reasons, the kind of principles that Paul lays out in this passage as he unpacks God's word and God's intentions. And I think as we do, <clears throat> we will see just how profoundly relevant uh, God's word is for our lives today. Uh, there might be questions that you have along the way, and so you're welcome to ask questions at the end, depending on how brave I feel uh, by the end. Uh, but I'll also get Ruth to come up and stand uh, with me, and, and we can interact with the questions together. If you're a regular here you will know that our pattern on Sundays is we take a book of the Bible and we work our way through. So last term, we finished the book of 1 Kings. We just worked our way through. Last year, we were working through the letter of Paul to the Corinthian church. We got up to chapter 10. There was a kind of a break. Uh, and now we pick it up again. And by the end of September, we'll finish this book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> but today just happens to be this incredibly countercultural and quite difficult passage. Uh, but what we do is our pattern is we don't just sidestep difficult parts of God's word. We say, all right, this is God has given this to, for our instruction, for our good. So let's grapple with it together, seek to understand uh, and 
our experience has been that we've been deeply blessed by God over many years of that practice. So, three key headings, but they're kind of just extensions of one another. Here's the first key heading. The first key heading is about ordered and loving relationships. And so I want to spend some time in verse 3. I think that's one of the key foundations to this whole passage. Um, the, and so the first, in this verse, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. What Paul does is he starts with three ordered but loving relationships. Right? Man and Christ, woman and man, Christ and God. Now I want to start with the third, and that is the statement, the head of Christ is God. The relationship between God the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is, is a beautiful relationship in every way. Um, what you see is difference, asymmetry. You have the Father who is the head, the Son who obeys the Father. So, that, so it's an asymmetrical relationship in terms of being an ordered relationship. And yet there is complete equality. They're both God uh, and yet the, God the Son entrusts himself to the leadership of God the Father. Jesus learns and chooses obedience, courageous trust in the Father. And you go to the Garden of Gethsemane and you can just see that trust. If you are willing, God, take this cup from me, but not what I will. Jesus presses on the path of obedience, but it takes courage, it takes trust, and it's beautiful. Uh, and there's never a point, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's never a point where you think, oh, Jesus and his Father are out of sync with one another. You always feel like they're united in their purpose. They're working together to accomplish the salvation of the world. Uh, and it is just a beautiful relationship. So there's the first ordered but loving relationship. The second is the one in, at the start there, the head of every man is Christ. Now, every single one of us, if we are Christians, if we are followers of Jesus, we have willingly chosen to entrust ourselves to Jesus' leadership. We, have, uh, we do it joyfully because he has proven himself so worthy of being our leader. He loves us. He laid down his life for us. At every step along the way, so it's not always easy to follow Jesus because sometimes obedience is difficult. Uh, and sometimes it feels like Jesus is asking me to do something, but I'd rather do this. And yet we learn that path of willingly entrusting ourselves into the loving care of Jesus Christ. Um, we learn to entrust ourselves into his leadership. And men in particular... We must never forget that whilst we might be leaders in some spheres of life, including our family, uh, in our relationship with Jesus, we are called on to entrust ourselves to his loving leadership. So there's the second of the three relationships. And similarly, you have the third one, the, the middle one, the head of the woman is man. 
Now, women, I just want to be really clear here. This is not saying that each woman, each woman here entrusts themselves to every man here. No, but if you are married, you entrust yourself to your husband and his leadership. That's what's on view. And I know this is fraught with emotion. So I know this topic is fraught with emotion because not all husbands are good leaders, right? So it's difficult enough with Jesus and, and entrusting ourselves to his loving leadership, but not all husbands are good leaders. Um, and this was brought home to me at the very first wedding I ever was involved in. I preached at a wedding 30 years ago. Would you believe it? I was on MTS, ministry trainee, and I was asked by this young couple to speak at their wedding, and they gave me a passage that talked about role differences between men and women in marriage, about leadership and entrusting yourself to that loving leadership. And, you know, I was young, naive, courageous, um, but, but I knew these ideas were controversial, and so I worked really hard to show how good and compelling that sort of relationship can be. During the reception, two men, right, so this is in a country town in New South Wales, so I never met them before, I never met them afterwards. These two men came up to me, they were both 30 years older than me, so they were my age, but this is 30 years ago, so they're 30 years my senior, and they had kind of, you know, they'd had a couple of beers and, uh, you know, they were feeling very, you know, jovial. Um, and they had a question for me. Can you, tell our wives to, to, uh, can you tell our wives to submit to us? And I was like, oh, I actually felt crushed uh, inside. They weren't, they weren't taking this seriously. So they weren't seriously wanting me to come and do this. They thought they were being funny but they weren't being funny, were they? Um, at best, that's immaturity. And it sounds funny, doesn't it, to say immaturity of 50-year-old men. Uh, but I reckon that's immaturity at the very least. Uh, but I just want to add this. Uh, so I've been pastor of this church for 21 years. And in all that time leading this church, I cannot recall hearing a comment like that from one of the men of our church. Uh, and I think that's a lovely testimony. I'm not saying that it's never happened, but certainly in my hearing, I haven't, I haven't I heard men kind of joking or having those male chauvinist kind of jibes or whatever um, about their wife and their marriage. Because for our wives to entrust themselves into our care... They need to trust us. They need to know that that's a safe thing to do, that we'll handle that responsibility wisely and lovingly and well. Uh, they, our wives need to know that we will love them with a Christ-like love, or at least that's our goal and intention. And so we need to work hard at kind of communicating that and not undermining that trust by these, by these jokes that just fall kind of flat. So let's keep cultivating patterns of behaviour, men, cultivate patterns of behaviour that show your wife how much you love her, uh, how much you uh, honour her 
and want to lead her well. And men, I, I, I do want to say abuse is never okay. Uh, and it is so much of what causes passages like this to be just emotionally fraught. Tragically, there is way too much abuse in family life in our society. I haven't been watching the news a lot this week, but every time I've seen the news, it seems like another story of domestic violence and abuse uh, comes on our screens. And you just think it is a, it is a curse on our society. Leadership that is controlling manipulative and harmful, God is absolutely crystal clear. He will call it to account. Uh, and he calls on us not to enable or tolerate it, but to actually do what we can to deal with that, uh, to call it out. And so, men, I want to say to you, if you have developed unhealthy patterns of relationship if you have fallen into abuse of your wife or your children, God calls on you today to urgently repent. Right? That is the way forward. Because one day you will, you will stand before him, but today is the day to take action. Today is the day to come clean to God and say, I'm sorry, to receive his forgiveness, but also, please, God, help me to change. Uh, please, God, make me the man that I need to be. Uh, and not only that, but I want to say, what steps are you going to put in place? Right? If, if that's something that has become a pattern in your marriage, what practical, concrete steps are you going to put in place? And I want to say one of the keys is shifting it to something that's silent and hidden and behind the scenes to actually talking to someone about it and getting some help and pressing forward in that way. Uh, and women, I want to I say to you, if you are feeling stuck in an unhealthy, abusive relationship, I am so sorry uh, that that is the case. That is not what God wants or intends for you in marriage. And so we want to offer you support. We want you to be safe. And so please come and talk to me or Ruth or one of the other leaders, Colin or Joy, uh, we'd love to bring help uh, and support you in this. Okay, so there it is. Verse 3 lays a key foundation. Three relationships where one leads and the other entrusts themselves to that leadership that is meant to be loving uh, and nurturing and protective. Uh, where the... There is mutual love. There is genuine partnership. And so my second point is just an extension of the first, and that is ordered and loving relationships are glorious. There is something beautiful and glorious about them. So verse 7 on the screen, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So back in Genesis 1 and 2 is on view here uh, in this verse. This is what Paul's thinking about as he writes this. Back in Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, you have God making everything. And it is good. God keeps stepping back. And the world that God made is so good. And at the end, he says, it is very good. 
But in all that God created, in all the animals, in all the, the worlds and the stars and the sun, everything God in, put in place, there is a high point. There is a climax. And that is where humanity is made in the image of God. So verse 26 of Genesis 1, God said, let us make mankind in our image. And then comes a little song. Uh, and it's almost like, uh, you know, here's a praise. Here, here, here's a, a little song highlighting the glory of this moment. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. See, we men and women, we are the pinnacle of all God created. Um, we kind of, we haven't done anything to deserve that. Uh, we haven't done anything to earn that. Just in God's creation, he gave us a special dignity and honour. We alone, of everything God has made, we alone carry the image of God. In God's eyes, there is something glorious about humanity. And God's purpose is that as we display his glory, so we bring glory to him. So as humanity shine out the glory of being in the image of God, so it actually brings glory to the God who made us. Uh, if, if, that, if they are in the image of God, then wow, what a God has made them. That's, that's God's design. The problem is sin mars all of that. So by Genesis 3, you see sin enter the world. And, and sin means we do not bring glory to God as we are meant to. We actually bring shame to the God who made us as we resist his will for our lives, as we rebel and run lives our own way. And so the very pinnacle of creation, humanity created to bring glory to God, actually brings shame on the God who made us. What a tragedy that is. And so it's only with Jesus, when he steps into our world, it's only with Jesus that we see God's glory revealed truly. And if you read John's gospel, you keep seeing this little phrase, Jesus reveals the glory of God. As you look at Jesus, there is something glorious about him. So loving, compassionate, wise. Uh, just in every way, he was glorious. And there's a paradox. And the paradox is this. We see the glory of God in sacrificial, loving service. Right? So we don't see the glory of God in pomp and ceremony and all that sort of stuff. We don't see it primarily in power, but in sacrificial, loving service. Right? That is where the power and wisdom and glory of God is seen as Jesus lays down his life and dies for the sin of the world. There the glory of God is most clearly on view in sacrificial, loving service. And now through Jesus, now the, the door has been opened. The opportunity is there now for us who come to Jesus. 
we are now redeemed humanity. And we now have an opportunity to fulfill our calling, to actually display the image of God to a world that doesn't know God, to a world that has become estranged from God. We can shine out the glory of God. We can shine out the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so as people look at us and our community, our church family, they actually see the glory of God and his son Jesus. That's God's purpose for us, the church. And part of that involves embracing the goodness of the God-given gender that, that God made us with, uh, male and female. So 1 Corinthians 11, see the second part there? This is verse 7, woman is the glory of man. Uh, I think this idea begins in Genesis chapter 2. So the first man, Adam, is alone in the Garden of Eden. So it's kind of like Genesis 1 is big picture, Genesis 2 zooms in onto the Garden of Eden, and God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And God places the man into a deep sleep. He takes a rib from the side of the man, and he forms a woman from the rib, the woman Eve. And when Adam first sees Eve, he's just delighted. Uh, he is overjoyed and he sings a song, right? second song uh, in scripture. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Adam sees something beautiful, glorious in this woman. And I, I want to say something. She is not merely a woman. She is his wife. Right? And so we're told the two become one flesh. And in the big storyline of the Bible, Eve's beauty and glory foreshadows the beauty and glory of the church. And so you, know, so you see Adam and Eve in the garden, and that marriage foreshadows the marriage that will come at the end of history when Jesus Christ is revealed and the church steps forward and is revealed as the glorious bride of Christ. Right? You can read about it in, Genesis, uh, in Revelation 19, Revelation 21. It's like there's this unveiling. And the whole world gasps in, because this is such a beautiful sight. The church dressed in these, this radiant outfit, just so beautiful uh, and so glorious. And yet, as, as, as we gaze in wonder at the, the beauty and glory of the church, it actually brings glory to Jesus because he is the one who has dressed her. He is the one who has drawn us into his people, his body, his bride, the church. And so Jesus makes her glorious, but she in turn brings glory to him. See that beautiful mutuality where one, one is glorious, but they bring glory to the other. That's God's design. And I just want to say to all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your destiny. Your destiny 
is that one day, at the end of history, you will be part of the bride of Christ and you will be revealed in all your glory. And you don't look glorious now, but on that day, all creation will hold their breath and go, wow, look what Jesus has done. Look at his bride. And that applies to you, whether you're married or single, whether you're divorced or widowed, whatever your situation in life, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will be part of the glorious bride of Christ. And, uh, and 1 Corinthians 11 picks up on this interdependence, because I think that's a key part of this passage. That is that mutuality, bringing glory to one another. Verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Our genders, uh, being created male and female, that is good. That is exactly as God intended it to be, and it is glorious. Uh, And as we embrace these gifts of God, we bring honour to one another, and we bring glory and honour to the God who made us. Now, I just want to give you a little emotional break. Uh, for, and I want to talk about dancing with star, the stars for a moment, all right? Okay, so just, all right, have a look there on the screen. Um, I, I, I watched a couple of seasons of this in, in years gone by, but I haven't been watching this at all. Has anyone watched Dancing with the Stars? Don't be embarrassed. Okay, there's one person here in this whole. Uh, oh, two. Okay, sorry, Judy, I missed you. All right, okay. Um, anyway, I used to watch it. How, how deep into the season are we? Oh, you, don't, you, don't, you said you watch and you don't... What's that? Today? The, well, there you go. I, see, I had no idea. Um, all right. Now, it is interesting, in a society where there is so much gender confusion and controversy, it's interesting that this show is popular. Um, let, me, let me run with this for a moment. Because ballroom dancing, you know, here's another, here's another shot. Ballroom dancing, almost by definition, is an expression of gender difference. Um, almost always, the man leads and the woman entrusts herself to that lead. She responds uh, to his leadership. And the best, most beautiful dancing is where they're a team, where they kind of just, just that togetherness, that partnership, where they bring out the best in one another, and it is, it is beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to watch. And, and even me, who has no skill in dancing, I can look at that and I can go, that is, that is beautiful. Uh, there's something just that resonates. And I want to just suggest maybe that is a picture of how God has created us. Men and women, equal but different, together displaying the glory of God. Uh, Maybe that's a picture of God's design. So, that's a little break. Come to our final point. Ordered and loving relationships, they're glorious, 
But what does that look like in practice? So if all we've seen so far is true, that is we're created male and female, equal but different, together glorious and bringing glory to God, then what will that look like in action? How do we express this in practice? You ready? Well, just before we come to that, let me, let, let me do something else. I just want to point out a book I've been reading, um, and it's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A Guide to Sex in the 21st Century by Louise Perry. Anyone read this book? Okay, even less than Dancing with the Stars. Um, all right, this is a, a great book. Um, I found it just so helpful. This lady is not a Christian, she's an atheist, um, committed feminist, and she really writes this book on behalf of women, advocating for women. Um, she's been involved in a rape trauma centre and just seen the impact of sexual abuse and so on. And she comes to the conclusion that the sexual revolution... Uh, sorry, just, just go back. She comes to the conclusion that the sexual revolution has failed women badly. Now, the idea that men and women are the same and that sex is just something that you can use and it's almost a disposable thing, sexual promiscuity is kind of advocated or certainly not seen as a bad thing, she's saying that harms women disproportionately to men. Now, I think it harms men as well, but in a different way to women. But have a look at some of what she says. The sexual revolution is an ideology premised on the false belief that the physical and psychological differences between men and women are trivial. And she says they're not trivial. Just, just go on to the next slide. Let's see what else we've got. The problem is the differences aren't trivial. One half of the population is smaller and weaker than the other half. Right? She, you know, it's obviously, it's a bell curve, isn't it? But, you know, generally speaking... But anyway, she's saying this, not me, right? So if you want to take offence, take offence. Yeah. Uh, one half of the population is smaller and weaker than the other half, making it much more vulnerable to violence. This half of the population also carries all the risks associated with pregnancy. It is also much less interested in enjoying all of the delights now on offer in the post-sexual revolution era. She's just saying that the whole way we treat sex... In, in, in the aftermath of the sexual revolution, suits men and not women. It's actually harmful for women. Go on to the next slide. The word chivalry is now deeply unfashionable because it describes something of what I'm calling for. Sorry, but it describes something of what I'm calling for. Chivalrous social codes that encourage male protectiveness towards women are routinely read from an egalitarian perspective as condescending and sexist. But the cross-culturally well-documented greater physical strength and propensity for violence makes such codes of chivalry overwhelmingly advantageous to women and their abolition in the name of feminism deeply unwise. Um, interesting. Um, now, what... Her concluding chapter, so she's really writing this book to women, but she's, I'm sure she's aware of an audience of men listening in. Very, very compelling book. Um, but at the end, her final chapter is, Listen to Your Mother. Um, and, and what she's saying basically is, the world around you says, 
you know, have sex with whoever you want, you know, the hookup type sex, that's all good. Uh, be who you want to be, you're no different to a man and so on. And she says, listen to your mother. Your mother is concerned that you find a man who will be with you in the long term, who's not just in for quick sex, and off he goes. Uh, you need a man who's willing to be with you for a while, even before you have sex. There's a good... So th this is what she's saying, right? There's a good case study. And, she, and, and in the end, she says, the best context for male-female sexual relationship is in monogamous, lifelong marriage. Uh, and this is... She's not a Christian. She's an atheist. She argues it from biology and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it's interesting to hear... I think she's, she's wrestling with some of the realities of how we've been created by God. Now, where are we going from here? All right, so come to 1 Corinthians 11. So much of this passage that Sue's beautifully read for us, so much is about head coverings, and yet I've hardly talked about head coverings of all. I, I did reference it in the introduction, right? But I've hardly talked about it all. Uh, that's because the foundational principles are the key. They're the things we need to catch hold of, and then the outworking in practice is, are, are just the implications that flow. Head coverings, I want to argue, is a cultural outworking of these foundational principles in the first century Roman Empire context. So every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved, and so on. Um, it just sounds so culturally removed from our society today, and yet as we noticed earlier, at the coronation... Basically, people embraced... I, I didn't have an, another picture of the coronation there. Um, oh, there it is. All right, so we saw that. At the coronation, basically, people embraced something of the dress code without even having it prescribed. There was a feeling that not to wear a hat or something like that would, might be making a statement. Um, and so the women who attended chose to wear a hat the men chose not to wear a hat unless it was part of their military uniform and so on. Now, that was an extraordinary gathering, and I am not advocating this for our church gatherings. Right? So please hear me uh, very clearly on that. I don't think it would be a helpful gender expression for us to wear hats or scarves or some sort of head covering in church because that's just not the normal way we express gender differences in our culture. And so what it would mean is we live out there in our culture and then we come to church and we do something that's completely weird and foreign. That's not what was happening in the first century. In the first century, Roman Empire, married women wore a scarf on their heads, signalling to people around them that they were married. Not single. They had a husband they had entrusted themselves to. Kind of like married people wear a wedding ring. Today. You know, I know it's not as entrenched a norm, but it gives you a little bit of an indication of the sort of symbolic meaning of a head covering. Um, wearing a head covering was not just a Christian practice. The whole of society expressed their marriage relationships with that cultural symbol 
of a scarf on their heads. And when a married woman went out in public without a head covering, that was a signal. Kind of like denying that she was a married woman. And so the Apostle Paul, as he instructs the church at Corinth about how to conduct themselves when the church gathers, notice he expected both men and women to contribute. Really important to see that in this this passage. As the church gathers, he expects both men and women to pray and to prophesy. Now we'll unpack what he means by prophecy in a few weeks' time, but I'll just give you a little bit of a foretaste. Prophecy is basically a word of encouragement, Bible reading, song, any word that is intended to build God's people up, a word of scripture and so on. Any word that is spoken to the gathering to build them up in their faith in the Lord Jesus. So prayer and prophecy. Both men and women are engaged. The key restriction in this passage is this. Men, as you participate in church, do it as a man. Women, as you participate in church, do it as a woman. Husbands, do it as a husband. Wives, as a wife. Um, Because healthy community amongst God's people is not all about self-expression. Self-expression is one of the idols of of the time in which we live. But as a church community, relationships and interdependence is far more significant and compelling than self-expression. Uh, embracing who God has made us to be, working together in an orderly fashion that honours each other and honours God. 